I find go-to cola, you know, it's an anxiolytic, so right there it's your relaxing nervine, but it's brain stimulant because it sends blood to the brain, so it wakes you up and keeps you alert, but it also keeps you calm and not anxious. And then it has the great connective tissue tonic. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio by Learning Herbs. I'm John Gallagher. And I'm Tara Ruth. Today we're chatting with Chanchelle Cabrera. Chanchelle is a medical herbalist and has been in clinical practice for 35 years with a specialty in holistic oncology. She is also a certified forest bathing practitioner, master gardener, and horticultural therapist. Chanchelle's latest book is Holistic Cancer Care, an herbal approach to preventing cancer, helping patients thrive during treatment, and minimizing the risk of recurrence. She lives on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and you can learn more about her work on chanchelcabrera.com. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again. Yes, thank you. In your book, you talk about how you've sat with other words like integrative, complementary, or alternative care. And can you talk about why you landed on holistic cancer care and what this Mm -hmm. term means to you? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that point in the book because it's it's sort of subtle but important because it sets it all into context. So I think one of the one of the sad parts about the way medicine is practiced in North America and really in in much of the world today is this idea that you have to do one or the other that if you do alternative medicine it is an alternative to mainstream. And of course, in truth, as we all know, mainstream is herbal medicine because 80% of the world is using herbal medicine as their primary healthcare. So really that's the mainstream. But in this context, what I'm talking about is, you know, the, the chemotherapy and, and radiation and that that aspect of, of conventional cancer care. We shouldn't have to choose between one or the other. And the term alternative implies an either or situation. And I don't find that useful because as a practitioner, I require that my patients are under the care of an oncologist because I need to get information that is not available to me without an oncologist's intervention. I need tests, I need pathology reports. Mm -hmm. And so it's critically important that we find ways to, what I call in the book, to collaborate because the patient should be in the driver's seat deciding on who they want in the team and then working, the whole team working together collaboratively for the patient's greatest good. Now, you know, a bit of a pipe dream, of course, but but that's what we're aiming for. And I will say that in the 20 years I've specialized in cancer care, I've seen a, a sea change in, in the attitudes. I mean, it's mm. just, I, I do still get some pushback, but more than ever now, I'm just getting a sort of neutral stance from the oncologists about herbal medicine. They're not really saying alternative anymore. They're not making patients make the choice. They're saying, you know, we don't understand it, but do whatever you want a lot more than they used to. And so the whole term alternative is not really helpful or informative anymore. And collaborative, I think, is the way to go. Why, why do you think they are nowadays more going yeah, we're open to that. Like we're yeah. to do, you know, versus. Well, I think there's probably a number of factors. One, obviously, is patients are getting more educated and more empowered and more demanding. The uh-huh. medical system is failing them. And so they're becoming more vocal in their demands because they're seeing that if they don't 
speak out, they won't get the quality of care they need. I mean, sad but true that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So I actively encourage my patients to be quite outspoken about their wishes and needs because otherwise they won't get them met. So, the, you know, doctors obviously are responsive to that to some extent, but I think medical schools are changing. I mean, there are some, they're still called integrated medicine departments. For example, you know, down in, in Arizona, Andrew Wiles, mm-hmm. the center there is being run by Lise Alshula, who's a naturopath who used to run the herbal medicine department at Bastia University. So she's taking all of that into mainstream medicine. So, you know, there's more awareness, younger doctors growing up in a culture that's generally a bit more aware. And, you know, some of us have been around this a long time and we've seen it's not just in medicine, is it? It's about, you know, organic. So 20, 30, you know, 40 years ago, I grew up on a so-called organic farm. And, you know, back then it was very odd and anomalous. You people didn't generally think about organic, but now it's fairly mainstream. It's in the supermarkets, right? So there's been a whole change of culture, I think, towards natural overall, As fast as we get urbanized, we yearn for nature. That's very ironic. But um, so I think, you know, herbal medicine has been um, lifted on that rising tide of awareness, I suppose. And Mm. and the doctors have lifted with that. So in in your book, you share about how for the first decade of your clinical practice, you felt like you really didn't have those tools to support your patients Mm. with cancer. So how did this change and what drew you to focusing on holistic cancer care? Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly true that for more than a decade, almost 15 years, I had a general practice. I saw lots of patients with lots of different conditions. And I would have to say herbal medicine largely works. It's very effective for lots of different things. But there was a certain point, and you know, this this may sound maybe hard to hear, but there was a point where I started to get a little bored, sort of almost intellectually bored, where I knew Mm -hmm. that I had great strategies for the herbs to help things like asthma and eczema and menopausal symptoms, and the herbs definitely had something to offer, but I wasn't learning a great deal anymore. I wasn't getting stretched in my clinic. Each and every patient is unique and interesting, but overall, I was not learning as much as I wanted to after a certain amount of time in clinical practice. So I needed to go back to deepen and broaden my my herbal knowledge. And I landed in a Master of Science degree at the University of Wales, Master of Science in Herbal Medicine. And I had the opportunity, the, the invitation to go to Oregon to work in the clinic of Donnie Yance, mm-hmm. who is a herbalist who specializes in cancer care and has for a long time. And he wanted research done. And I was doing a research-based master's. <laughs> so it seemed like a really good fit. He was able to give me a job where I did research into long-term cancer, breast cancer patients in his practice and wrote my dissertation sort of on the back of that. It was called Living with Breast Cancer. And it was about patients who'd been in his practice for 10 years or more and still were in treatment for cancer, although cancer was not bringing them down, as in they still had cancer in their bodies. They were still cancer patients, but they but they were living. It was called thriving or living with breast cancer because, because they were living with it. Right. It was so inspiring to me. I went there not feeling skilled in that arena, saw what Donnie was doing, apprenticed basically. I'd been in clinic already 15 years and running a school, running Dominion Herbal College up here in Vancouver. But but still and all, I went 
back as an apprentice myself to learn from a master. And I had two years there. It was fantastic learning and empowering for me to see how much the herbs could do. And so that's that's what kicked it off. I didn't go out looking for this challenge, really. I looked hmm. for a challenge. I didn't know where it was going to land. And this is where it... It's very interesting because in this profession, most of us are generalists and a few people specialize. And as in any profession, specializing is something you do after you've been a generalist for quite a while and built that foundation. But it certainly is a very good way to practice because you are then sort of forced into really deep dive learning in a subject, which is what it takes to really know your subject matter, you've got to really put the work in. And so I think, you know, at the end of a, you know, of a long series of study, then you, you, being a specialist gives you a, a greater insight into that arena. So it's, you know, it's been great as a, as a clinical sort of, if you like, a, a professional choice. So I'd like to shift the conversation to people who are listening, who may have cancer or may have someone in their family they're caring for. And because it seems like a fear, the fear of one place to start would be the fear of potential herb drug interactions that can stop a lot of people from maybe using herbs. So how do people navigate their herb drug interactions? And how can people be confident that the recipes and formulas that they might say, for example, get from your book are safe for them to take? It's a great question. And, you know, we we definitely explore that in some detail in the book. And I, I think I would really like to, to sort of down-regulate some of the fear that happens around this because it's largely misplaced. It is mostly based on lack of knowledge or lack of understanding rather than fact or evidence-based medicine. In fact, the evidence-based medicine strongly supports the idea that most of the herb drug interactions that we see are in fact quite positive, quite useful. You know, a good example of this would be with turmeric, where people think that turmeric is an antioxidant. And that is only partially true because in the herb world, we really don't have true antioxidants what they do is actually regulate the oxidation reduction pathways. And so we call them redox regulators. They're, it's not a one-way street with herbal medicine. If you take a, a pure antioxidant like synthetic vitamin C, it can donate an electron, quench a free radical. That's an antioxidant. Great, everybody's happy. But your ascorbic acid just lost an electron, and now it is itself a free radical. So what did you just gain by that? Not a great deal. So what the plant complexes do, the flavonoid complexes and things like turmeric, is they donate an electron and then they borrow it back and then they donate it again and then they borrow it back again. And this goes on many, many, many times, hundreds if not thousands of times in a second. The electrons are bouncing from one orbit to the next shared so that neither party is either completely oxidized or completely reduced, or only for fractions of a second. And this is redox regulation. And when you apply this concept to chemotherapy, the idea that an antioxidant will negate chemotherapy in its most simplistic uh, reductionist thinking, yes, that would be true. Chemotherapy works by oxidative stress, 
So yes, if you use an antioxidant, you're going to inhibit chemotherapy's efficacy. But with the herbs, that's not what happens. With the herbs, the metabolism of the cancer cell, in contrast to the metabolism of healthy cells, the way it works with the flavonoids, you end up quenching the free radicals that are causing collateral damage in the cell or in the adjacent cells, but actually augmenting the efficacy of the chemotherapy as an oxidative compound in the cancer. And literally a, a, a sort of contradictory or paradoxical effect where you're getting activation of chemotherapy and protection of healthy cells simultaneously. And this is evidence-based medicine. This is what we see. And there are lots of very reductionistic studies that demonstrate how and why these pathways work this way, but the clinical practice affirms all of that reductionist research, which is always great when the research says one thing and clinic says the same thing, then you know you're onto something that's really pretty reliable. And so, yes, we have a concern about herb-drug interactions. I'm not making light of it. But very often what we find is that they're very positive interactions. They're useful and we can work with them. And even, for example, this is now getting out into clinical practice, not for the lay person, but if you are on a blood thinner and having bleeding episodes, maybe you could be taking some herbs which are, if you could see me, I'm putting inverted commas here, blood thinning <laughs> herbs, because it isn't quite as simple as that language would suggest. But there are herbs which will mediate some of the, of the clotting factors and maybe that can help that you don't need as much of the drug and therefore you have less drug side effects. That's not for the lay person to mess with those drug doses, but mm -hmm. a clinician might and compensate for the declining drug dose with appropriate herbs. Those are positive interactions. The textbook by Jonathan Treasure, Mitch Stargrove and Dwight McKee, the textbook called Herb Nutrient Drug Interactions is fabulous for looking into this. Herb Nutrient Drug Interactions by Jonathan Treasure, Dwight McKee, and Mitch Stargrove, a herbalist, oncologist, and a naturopath. That book looks at all the, all the interactions as potentially positive mm -hmm. and therefore may be useful. For the layperson, I would say consult with a professional. It's not necessarily safe to do all herbs with all drugs at all times. Of course it's not. And so, notably, herbs go through pathways in the liver, just like drugs do, just like foods do, and they could induce or inhibit those pathways just like drugs or just like foods. And in the unknown of that is the risk, right? We know how many of the drugs are processed, but not all by any means. And we know how a few of the herbs are processed and a few of the food complexes where they go through the liver, but with foods and herbs with hundreds of chemicals, we do not know how those all go through the liver and if they induce or if they inhibit. So there's always a risk. We mm -hmm. don't tell patients not to eat while they're taking drugs. We sometimes tell them to separate herbs and or our foods and drugs, and maybe we'll separate herbs and foods and drugs as well. You know, there's but but it's the unknown. That is the scary part. And I guess what I would say is that there is little to no research that validates the risk sufficient to hold back from logical treatment. I'm trying to say this carefully, if you have a very good reason to use this herb in this person and you've researched that as much as you can, it is safe. That is 
are the pathways in the liver known? Is there a recorded prior risk event? You know, do some research. You can't find any evidence. Remember, of course, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm. Hmm. That's a really important point. It may not have been looked for in the past. It may not have been researched or counted or measured in the past. So just because it's not in the literature doesn't mean it couldn't be true. That's where your evidence-based medicine kicks in. You go low and slow, you go in carefully, you measure and monitor. And that's what a clinician would do. If there was a high-risk situation, you wouldn't be messing with that on your own without some supervision, I guess. Yeah, that's super helpful to to bring that into. Yeah, it's navigating between not being afraid and not being careless. You know, we're not being frivolous with this. It's real medicine. If it works, if it's going to kill cancer, for sure, it's going to have some risk Mm -hmm. profile. But that shouldn't stop you doing things. And, you know, not making light of it, but I would have to say that there is little to nothing that a herbalist could ever do that could possibly be as toxic as what the doctors are giving the patients already. Mm -hmm. And hearing you talk about herb-drug interactions and then also bringing food and how, how of course, that affects our bodies as well. I'm thinking about how in your book, you also bring in nutritional strategies for inhibiting cancer growth. And I'm wondering, can you talk about some of the nutritional strategies you employ as part of a holistic cancer care treatment plan? Yes. I, you know, one of the gratifying things about having been doing this work for so long and not just specializing in cancer care, but as a clinician for 35 years is to watch how how many things that we learned in school or over the years of clinic from all the different teachers that we've had, how many things we've learned that are now becoming like mainstream. So we used to be scoffed and scorned and laughed about all kinds of things that are now very mainstream, including that just in the last I know, month or so, there was a huge big study that came out verifying and validating, no great surprise, how junk food causes cancer and heart disease. I mean, hello, what planet are we on? What century are we in? You know, it's like, it's gratifying that the world is catching up with good health principles and practices. Obviously, not everybody is there yet and not the the institutional inertia is a big problem because the you know the lobbying power of the sugar industry and the and the meat industry and what have you is you know very very big but the academia and medical research knows perfectly well what's going on we we haven't necessarily translated that into sort of government policies and programs that serve the people but There is an overwhelming, overwhelming amount of research now about organic foods and vegetables and avoiding sugar. And, you know, the basic principle is not really just about cancer. It's about... um, Just about not smoking. (laughs) No, it's not just about not smoking either. Although I will say that lung cancer is the fastest growing cancer worldwide, including North America. And it's growing faster in women than in men. Mm -hmm. And... That is a lot to do with smoking, of course, but it's also a huge amount to do with airborne pollution and microparticles in the air. And so, yes, you know, not smoking is obviously important, but it's, yeah, there's just, it's a dangerous world out there. So I think given the overwhelming number of threats to our health and well-being, 
we have some personal responsibilities to do what we can to avoid as many of those as possible. And that's all I try to say in the book is don't beat yourself up for what you can't avoid or what you haven't done in the past or any of that. That's not useful. You just look around your day, your life, your house. You say, well, what is in here that isn't serving my health right now? What changes can I make that are reasonable, affordable, you know, doable? And then you, mm. that's what you do. You do what you can and that's all. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's not just cancer. It's every aspect of your health and well-being. Yeah. It's because cancer is sometimes called an inflammation that never resolved. That's another way of thinking of it. So what is this incredible sort of global systemic inflammation that we have now. We have cancer, heart disease, and the autoimmune inflammations. These have never been more prevalent. What is driving all this inflammation in our bodies that is underpinning so much disease process? So many, many diseases have inflammation as a core process. Why is that happening now more than ever? I just keep coming back to the lifestyles we have and the diets that we eat. Right. And, you know, those are, are some things that we might be able to make changes in. That, when reading your book, that's what I, you know, realize when you, have, when you list out possible causes. And I'm reading the list and I'm like, really, no one's immune. You can try your best. Because what I'm saying is, yes, there's sugar and smoking and all that. But there's also things like like in my case, personally, where we're dealing with hereditary things and whatnot, and you mm -hmm. often can't control, but you can try your best. And so in that case, and you're just, we were just getting into, in addition to nutrition, yeah, what are those like lifestyle recommendations that people can consider that might help them at least decrease their risk? Yeah. What you're talking about is the, is the science of epigenetics. And this is relatively new, I'm 10, 20 years that it's been sort of talked about in any, you know, sort of large way. And only in the last few years has it been sort of promoted as an opportunity for bringing better health. So epigenetics is the idea that you are dealt a set of genetics at birth, you know, dealt your your sort of deck of, of cards and you, you get to play your hand and, you know, what did you get? Well, how do you influence what of those genes shows up. So you have your genotype, the, what you inherit, and then you have your phenotype, which is how it shows up in real life, what's manifesting. So it's about switching on and switching off the genes. You're born with a set of genes, but which ones are active? Which ones are dormant? Which ones mm. are dominant? And which ones are quiescent? And that's the science of epigenetics. So epigenetics refers to the capacity to change which genes are expressing. And this is really exciting, and we can do it by changing the signals that the cell receives. And your so your DNA only responds to a message. It doesn't have a brain of its own to decide what to do. It responds to signals. Your DNA copies a piece of itself to make a new protein to carry out a function in response to a signal from the external environment. So what is that signal? That's the really interesting question, right? So your cell isn't making a decision about 
what to do. That decision is made sort of higher up the command chain when you receive a signal from the environment and your body interprets what that needs, how it needs to respond. So it's the interpretation of signals that's really, really interesting. Then what are the signals? So the signals are molecular things we ingest or inhale or, you know, are exposed to. But they're also the molecules we make in response to the environment. So if we're under threat, we make certain molecules that affect our cells in certain ways. And if we eat certain foods, we have certain molecules in us that affect cells in certain ways. So, and then the cells behave accordingly. It's our responsibility, therefore, to try and mediate the signals. And that's what the whole diet, lifestyle, you know, get your sleep, deal with your stress, all of that stuff, so that you're building resilience, so that when mm. the challenging signals come along, the cells are already in a good shape. They're, you know, well-behaved and, 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 and ready for the challenge. I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, Tara, is an amazing episode. There's so much information. It sure is. I'm so grateful for Chanchel for sharing all of this with us. And how she's here, entered a book, able to take something that's really complicated and help us connect and learn about it in a simple way. But before we get back to Chen Chao in part two, how about we play an herb note, one of your new herb notes? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited to share this one with you all. Welcome to Herb Notes. I'm Tara Ruth from Learning Herbs. Chances are you've probably stepped on your fair share of the herb plantain. This abundant medicinal plant loves to grow within pathways and even the most well-manicured lawns. It's so prolific, in fact, that when many people see it growing wildly in their yard, they weed it out and hope it doesn't come back. But herbalists know that this common herb offers many extraordinary healing gifts. Not only is plantain a first aid superstar, it also helps with more chronic issues too. Let's dive into three benefits of the common herb plantain. One, plantain can promote tissue repair in minor non-infected wounds like scrapes and cuts. Plus, plantain is an herbal drying agent, meaning it can help draw out small splinters. Two, plantain can soothe inflammation in the digestive tract. I often drink dried or fresh plantain leaf tea to soothe my stomach, and I also swish with plantain tea when I get canker sores in my mouth. Three, as a cooling anti-inflammatory herb, plantain excels at supporting mild, red, itchy skin issues like dry skin, sunburns, and insect bites. I often include plantain in my all-purpose salves and lotions because it's so versatile and calming for skin inflammation. So to recap, here are three ways that you can use plantain. One, you can work with plantain to promote tissue repair topically. Two, you can call on plantain to soothe inflammation in the GI tract. Three, you can use plantain to help address red, itchy skin issues like dry skin, sunburns, and bug bites. And right now you may be asking yourself, what kind of plantain can I use? What I'm talking about isn't the fruit plantain, but rather broadleaf plantain or narrowleaf plantain. In the US, broadleaf plantain, Plantago major and Plantago rugulae, is one of the two types of plantain commonly used as a medicinal herb. The other type is narrowleaf or ribwort plantain, Plantago lanceolata. All of these species can be worked with interchangeably and offer the three benefits I've highlighted here. Want to learn more about plantain's benefits? Visit herbnotes.cards to grab a free deck of our top 12 herb notes. 
You'll learn all about common herbs like catnip, yarrow, echinacea, cinnamon, and more. This has been Herb Notes with me, Tara Ruth. Catch you next time. You touched on sleep and stress management, and I'm wondering what else with specific lifestyle recommendations for folks um, that you often incorporate into a holistic cancer care plan. Yeah, I have a sort of top five things to do today. I mean, because it is definitely something people want, you know, they want to do something quickly, Mm -hmm. even if they know that there's a lot more to be done. They want something, you know, fast. And so I have, I'll give you my sort of top five the number one thing, and I suppose they're in order, but not necessarily. They're, they're all important. Reduce sugar. That's like number one. That's number one for all health, all health profiles. Reduce any refined sugars and refined carbohydrates to an absolute minimum, a treat, a special occasion, a piece of birthday cake. And then, you know, natural sugars like starchy vegetables or sweet fruits. You know, eat the whole food, eat a couple of starchy veg a day, one or two servings of whole grain, but not the flour products, the grain itself. So really, really reduce sugar. That's number one. Number two is eat mushrooms. I'm sorry Mm -hmm. that people are allergic, but eat mushrooms, lots of mushrooms, two or three or four times a week and make sure they're cooked. Yes. Because I love to bring the the medicine into the food. I love to make food the medicine. Why stress yourself taking pills when you could eat the good stuff? So mushrooms are really good. All mushrooms, portobello, cremini, oyster mushrooms, all of them have good medicine and they need to be cooked. And that's number two. So reduce sugars, eat mushrooms, six or seven servings of veg and two or three of fruit every day. That's point number three lots of fruit and veg. You need your phytonutrients. They're cofactors for every metabolic process in the body. And we evolved eating a humongous amount of fruit and veg. And so we really want to be pushing that. I try to get people six or seven servings of vegetables, two or three of fruit. It's hard to do that because we're not talking about juice. So again, from the top, reduce sugar, eat mushrooms, eat loads of fruit and veg. Number four is exercise and stress management. Mm -hmm. Mostly exercise because if you do good exercise, and I always suggest outdoors every time you possibly can in nature, because then you're getting double benefit of the forest bathing therapy. But if you're doing good exercise, you're getting your stress management, you're getting your blood sugar and your blood pressure controlled, you're getting your cardiovascular health, you're getting your mood elevation, you're getting your immune boosting. If you're doing it outside, you're getting your vitamin D. I mean, it's just all of that helps. It helps you deal with stress. And the last point is about stress specific and sleep. So I like to end my little spiel, the five things, you know, so again, Mm. avoid sugar, eat mushrooms, eat lots of fruit and veg, get lots of exercise, deal with your stress. And then, and in that last piece, dealing with stress, spend time with friends and loved ones, be outside in nature and laugh often. Hmm. (laughs) That's my top five things. Thank you for sharing those. And um, I get when you're talking about stress management, too, I can't help but think about herbs and the ways that herbs can help calm our bodies and support the nervous system of someone, you know, as they navigate the intense stress of receiving a cancer diagnosis. 
and going through treatment. And I'm curious about how you bring in herbal nervines into your practice for folks. Yeah, it's a great question because it's really fundamental, actually. So in the book, what I try to explain is the pyramid prescribing model. And the pyramid means there's like a foundation and two sides, right? So the foundation is the lifestyle, the diet, the stress management, the sleep. And then the two sides of the pyramid, one is all the supportive herbs and comorbidities. And then the other is the cytotoxic active cancer work. But in that foundation, that's a really great place for adaptogens. So I think adaptogens have a great role to play in managing cancer. I mean, they have, and again, in the book, I've gone into some detail about research specifically with adaptogens Mm -hmm. in oncology. But as a more general sense, just dealing with stress, adaptogens just give you more resilience, more capacity to roll with the punches. However, taking Mm. adaptogens is not a substitute for exercise, sleep, being in nature, (laughs) hanging out with your friends, watching comedy (laughs) movies, right? So you don't like run, 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 drink some coffee in the morning, take an adaptogen at lunch and crash in the end of the day. That's not the point, right? Right. The adaptogens should be used as a backup or, you know, it's a little bit like the word supplements. They should be supplementary to a good diet. So Mm -hmm. adaptogens should be supplementary to significant lifestyle changes. Right, right. Because sometimes there's a supplement or an herb that, um, you know, you just can't get enough of in your diet. Or maybe, you know, like we're not getting enough of a certain mineral because it's just not in the soil anymore. So that's the right, that's more the place mm-hmm. for the supplements. And Yeah, exactly. And I do think also in a diagnosis of cancer and, and, and indeed other diseases, Sometimes, you know, big disease takes big medicine. You can't necessarily get enough in a normal diet. I mean, Mm -hmm. let's be honest, something like turmeric, which Mm -hmm. there's, you know, few cancer patients that get away without a whole bunch of turmeric. And and yet how much could you really eat? You know, it's a pretty strong flavor. So I have a few ways I can get people to take it by the teaspoon, but all that to say that, you know, sometimes supplements are helpful to fill you know, to fill up the the um, the gap, really, where you couldn't realistically eat enough on a daily basis to sustain the therapy. And what are some of those specific adaptogens that you like to weave in? Well, I, I use a, a lot of licorice because it does have the anti-inflammatory properties as well. Obviously, it's not suitable for all patients and not everybody likes it, but I do like, I like to use licorice where I can. I use ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. I use I use a fair amount of eleuthero. I find mm-hmm. that quite helpful. And I use rhodiola, but I'm careful with rhodiola because it's quite stimulating. It's one of those adaptogens that gives you a lift and it's a little bit of a heart stimulant. So I'm careful who gets rhodiola. I don't use a lot of ginseng. I use some American ginseng, but not really the Korean Chinese. I find it too pushy for most of my patients. They're already a little bit debilitated mm-hmm. and I need to build them up and not make demand. And even though it's an adaptogen, Gen, it's also not a it's not a long-term herb, the Korean or Chinese ginseng. It's more of a quick booster and 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 sort of get out. And so I'm looking longer-term strategies here. 
Um, I use a great deal of astragalus, and some people, you know, do consider astragalus an right. adaptogen because it normalizes all of the immune functions, and so it isn't working on stress direct, but it's definitely working on the immune functions which are compromised by all the stress hormones, and I find astragalus hugely important. I use astragalus both in a soup. I make a big sort of broth mix that they can use with bone broths and what have you of all kinds of herbs. And astragalus is in there because the water will extract the large polysaccharides. But I also have it in tincture because I want the triterpene astragalicides to come out with a solvent. So it's one of those herbs I use in mm. two forms mm -hmm. to get two different medicines that are complementary to each other or sort of synergistic to each other. Yeah, so I use a few other adaptogens. I use Tulsi, which is a sort mm. of second tier adaptogen, if you like. It's not one of the key ones with lots of studies over long stretch and looking at adrenal health. It's not really working in adrenals, but I do find Tulsi helpful. I find Go-to cola, again, some people consider that an adaptogen because it gives you more lasting energy. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually the number one herb in my practice. Go-to cola is the herb wow. I use the most of and prescribe the most frequently. Before I went into cancer care as a specialty, my number one most prescribed herb was blue vervain. And I used to laugh in my classroom. I'd say, if you want to get the extra points or the gold star, just put blue vervain in your formulas. There isn't anyone who doesn't need it, right? But, but probably because the flower essence is just written for me. So I think blue vervain is my herb. Um, but now I do an you know, in the cancer practice, I do notice quite distinctively that go-to cholera is my top herb. When I did my research in Donnie Yance's clinic 20 years ago, in his breast cancer patients, licorice and red clover were by far his top herbs. But back then, we weren't really using go-to cholera in clinic hardly at all. It was kind mm -hmm. of a new herb on the block in the Western Materia Medica. And now it's really caught up. And, you know, I find go-to cola, you know, it's an anxiolytic. So right there is your relaxing nervine. But it's brain stimulant right. because it sends blood to the brain. So it wakes you up and keeps you alert if you've got chemo, brain, post-surgical, brain fog, that kind of stuff. But it also keeps you calm and not anxious. And then it has the great connective tissue tonic, right? So go-to cola strengthens and builds connective tissue. Well, cancer grows in connective tissue. It grows through connective tissue. When it metastasizes, the cells are traveling across connective tissue, across basement membrane and endothelial lining of blood vessels, and that's connective tissue. So if we can knit that up tight and give more structural integrity, then we can resist the spread and growth of cancer a little bit. And I use mm. lots of connective tissue tonics for that reason. I use wow. horsetail and plantain and oat straw and, you know, really trying to MSM as a supplement, trying to knit up connective tissue, hyaluronic acid. Yeah, it's, it's a whole strategy. I was just amazed how, in the book, how simply you explained, you know, what happens in cancer from the miscommunication between the outer cell to the nucleus and then all the way to the point where the the cell just can't stop growing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was wondering if you just explain that like simply to people to understand that part of what's going on. You know, just maybe think of that when you're talking about mm. the go to cola and everything. Well, it is really complex and there are a million moving parts and even in that book which I felt was quite dense there's so much I left out and so much more I've learned since I but closed But I appreciate off, how you know. simply you explained it, though. I was like, oh, I see. 
Yeah, you know, although they're super complex processes, they can still be explained in relatively plain English. And I will have to say that I had a little head start on the book in a sense because I've been teaching this stuff for quite a long time. And although I've been teaching it at the practitioner level, advanced level, that book was was born out of the nucleus of a six-day program that I've been teaching where I tried to take all those complex things and put it into plain English that anybody who isn't a practitioner would be able to follow along. And so I used a lot of that to, to, to flesh out you know, flesh out that material to write the book. So it had a flow to it and it had a, you know, I've spent a long time honing the the simplicity in there from the complexity of what I started with. You know, mm-hmm. the content of the of the research. If you go and look at all the references at the back of the book, it's like, whoa, to take that. It's taken a long time, years yeah. and years, to get it down into plain English. Mm. So thank you for noticing. I appreciate that. <laughs> hearing you offer all these different recommendations and also hearing you break down just what cancer is in simple forms. I'm I'm thinking about how holistic cancer care can be overwhelming sometimes for folks. You know, there's like an endless amount of things that one can do to support their body during cancer treatment. And I'm curious, how do you recommend people balance incorporating these holistic practices into their treatment plan without getting burnt out from the care plan itself? That's such a great question. Yeah, really, really good. First of all, I often ask or recommend that they appoint a support person or more than one who will come to appointments, who will help them source some of the products, help them make the bone broths and get them in the freezer and all those sorts of things. So having someone who's not just got your back emotionally and yes, yes, you know, I I appreciate you having a hard time, but you know, actually like, hey, I'm making your soups here and they're in the freezer for you. You know, that kind of practical support and helping you even interpret information from appointments. Sometimes you get so much information, you don't know whether you're coming or going, right? So getting you to appointments, keeping track of things when you've got chemo brain. So very practical stuff. I also recommend, you know, for example, and I actually think I have this in the book, if you're going into surgery or going into chemo, that you prep ahead by literally making all the broths and getting them in single serves in the freezer and really prepping everything Mm -hmm. out ready for yourself to go. Counting out all the pills ahead of time is it's really disheartening to sit in front of all those pill bottles every day and count them out. You want to get a a pill box and count out a month's worth. And then it's just a lot easier each day making a check-off chart that you put on the fridge where you check that you've taken your morning, noon, and night or those, you know. So trying to bring systems, I guess, making it a routine. Mm -hmm. Because it, it does seem overwhelming. But what I also find very interesting is some patients are so overwhelmed they actually don't come back. And I feel really badly about that. I have other patients who have the most complicated protocols and they absolutely do it all. And they just get on board and that's what they're doing. And I can't predict who's going to be able to deliver or perform like that. I So I have to sort of assume everybody wants to do everything, put it all out there and then work with them and negotiate what's realistic. Can you do this? Okay, you're not going to do that. What could we compensate for somewhere else? Those sorts of discussions are pretty common in clinic. It's rare that somebody does everything, but most people do most of it. And it's just about, you know, that old thing, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. (laughs) 
So you sit down and you make a plan and you try and bring somebody else in to help mm, you. Absolutely. Wow. So, Chantal, I'd like to, to, to say this quote that's from the introduction of your book where you say, my goal here is not to convince you that holistic medicine and natural therapies can help treat cancer. If you didn't already know that they work, you wouldn't have picked this book up. My effort here is to help you understand how they work, why it matters, and most of all, how to use them safely and effectively. I really like when that, because it really just says it in a nutshell, what you're, like your approach and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody anymore disputes that this stuff works. I mean, honestly, you know, the, the research just out of the food world is so overwhelming that, you know, everybody knows that what you eat matters. Notwithstanding the oncologist, I heard a report from a patient last week who was told, all this food stuff is nonsense. It doesn't matter at all, quote. <laughs> but it's pretty rare to meet that these days. And, you know, I would just like to say that this book I've written about holistic cancer care actually has a much wider application. First of all, up to between 40 and 50% of us will have cancer. So it does, you know, it is relevant to everybody. But beyond that, there's a whole chapter on pain management. There's a whole chapter on surgery. You know, these are not exclusive to cancer. So there's useful information in there, I hope, for other reasons aside from cancer. Even in the therapeutics part, there's discussion of the nutrients and some of the herbs beyond only cancer applications. So, so just to say it's, you know, it's about cancer, but it is also a, a little bit broader than that as well, I think. For practitioners who are maybe at a stage where they're more generally practicing right now, but are interested in specializing in holistic cancer care, you know, aside from reading your book and diving in that way, how else would you recommend practitioners specialize mm. in this area or just get more of that training? I am hosting a couple of events that people might want to know about in the, for anyone who's listening that is not a practitioner, but is interested either personally or for, you know, family health, etc. I am starting at the end of June. I'm going to be doing a seven part series on the shift network, in seven weeks following the book, exploring the concepts and, and, and having Q&A and discussion with students about sort of self-care and family health care with cancer. So that's on the Shift Network, and there is a landing page for that, and I can send links for that. So hmm, That's great. And then further from there, in the summer months, in the end of July, I'm hosting an event at my farm, which is a residential program, as in where you'd have to come here. It's not online. And there's some camping, and there's bed and breakfasts around and what have you. And it's a five-day case studies review with David Winston. And David Winston is a very, very senior, very experienced, highly regarded herbalist who's going to come out and stay here. And we're going to have five days of case reviews. And the participants are practitioners and senior students, and they'll be bringing cases to discuss kind of roundtable teaching each other, sharing of, of uh, what's working in clinic and challenges we're meeting in clinic. So that is more advanced, and some of those cases will be cancer cases. And in the beginning of the new year, I'm going to run an advanced intensive on 
basically picking up the second half of the book, all the clinical practice stuff about cancer care and cytotoxics and what have you. And that will go out online at the beginning of the year, January. So I will send you some links when that gets all set up. Well, Chanchel, thank you so much for joining us on Herb Mentor Radio. And for folks who want to learn more about you and your work, they can visit chanchelcabrera.com. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. And I hope that was useful and informative. Absolutely. And um, I just wish that I didn't have to have written that book, that nobody needed it. But as it is, I hope that it is helpful to people. It is absolutely helpful to people. And I just can't thank you enough for writing it. It's clarifies so much for me as well. I was been thinking about this recently because I, you know, had this long biopsy process that turned out to be all good and negative, but it was pretty scary. And when I knew you were interviewing you and picked up the book and looked through it and it was, you know, I just, I just, you know, I was wondering and, and I was just so glad I have that resource. Also just things that I can do to, you know, help keep myself healthy through any possible future stuff. So, yeah. So anyway, thank you so much. And we're going to have you back. Yeah. My pleasure indeed. Thank you. Herb Mentor Radio and Herb Notes are 100% sustainably wildcrafted podcasts written, performed, and produced by Tara Ruth and me, John Gallagher. Sound engineering by Zach Frank. Visit HerbMentorRadio.com to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and to find out how you can be part of Herb Mentor, which is a website that you must see to believe. Herb Mentor Radio is a production of LearningHerbs.com, LLC, all rights reserved. Thank you very, very, very much for listening. <laughs>